Welcome to the Spiritual Geek Out Podcast. I'm your host, Diane Hudock, where we have fun talking about the phenomenal and the fascinating. From angels to energy healing, from mystical places to mystical teachings, this is a place where we nerd out on the science of the soul. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Spiritual Geek Out. My guest today is Dr. Gladys McGarry. At 102, yes, you got that right, is the author of the best-selling book, The Well-Lived Life. Her resume is long, as one may imagine. She is the co-founder of the American Holistic Medical Foundation. She's the mother of six children, and she still has a 10-year plan. In this inspiring heart-centered talk, we discuss lessons she has learned along the way that have paved a life of happiness and true fulfillment. We talk about the five L's and what those are, the importance of finding one's juice in life, her most potent quality that has been her foundation for a well-lived life, how she healed herself of cancer naturally through listening to her inner directive, and the integral nature of love and life in service to moving through suffering and making this world one that is our divine inheritance. There's so much here to just soak up and take into your heart. And as always, I hope that this inspires you to take action in new and uplifting ways in your life that will make a positive difference and ripple effects in your community. Take what you need, throw the rest away, or pass it on to someone else who could use it. Enjoy. To me, your life has been quite emblematic of three very potent qualities for living, which is love, faith, and grace. And your latest book, A Life or The Well-Lived Life, uh, I want to say The Life Well-Lived, but the title is, of course, The Well-Lived Life, Same Intention. Um, really is a demonstration of these attributes or qualities that I'd love to dig into with you today. And on that, as I like to do, I'll start off by quoting a very brief paragraph from your book as it relates to illness. And you say, to understand this broader and more complete view of illness and healing and of life itself, we need to understand how well-being really works. Contrary to what the medical establishment believes, doctors don't heal patients. Only patients can heal themselves. As doctors, we apply skill, knowledge, and ingenuity to treating our patients. We care deeply about people, and we funnel that compassion into our work. This is our sacred role on earth, yet ultimately the best doctors know that healing comes from within. And I thought that was a really good place for us to start because I feel we've been set up in this world to a good degree to forget that, to forget that we have this brilliant pharmacopoeia inside of us that we can activate and yes, doctors can be a great guidepost for us and knowledge and resource, but ultimately 
ultimately we have that power within. Could you extrapolate on that wonderful paragraph? Uh, absolutely, because I think the way we have uh, gone on and on about the, what the job of, of physicians is, is that it's to eradicate disease and pain. And in the process of trying to do that and work with that, we've completely taken the power away from each individuals so that people don't know that they have the power. We have our skills, but they have the, that power. I have a story that goes with this that is very real. My oldest son is a, North, is a retired orthopedic surgeon. And he lives in, in Washington State, and he's now an organic gardener and all that kind of stuff, you know. So he's really going on with his stuff. But at, when he had finished his training, he came through Phoenix and he was on his way to Del Rio, Texas to start his practice. And he said, Mom, I'm real scared. He said, I'm going out into the world and I'm going to have people's lives in my hands. I don't know if I can handle that. Mm -hmm. And I said to him, well, Carl, if you think you're the one that does the healing, you have a right to be scared. But if you can understand that you have the amazing skill that you have been taught of orthopedic surgery, which is awesome. I mean, those of us who have had broken bones or parts of our bodies have needed orthopedic surgeons. But by the when you have done your job, then you support the patient physician within them as they take over the actual healing process, because that's the colleague that you need. That colleague is the physician within that patient. It's what Jesus talked about. It was the whole process of understanding that we as human beings have been given that ability to work within our within our own process, our own unit, this unit that is my body, understands that the body, mind, and spirit have to work together in order for us to be really working towards our true humanity. Hmm. Yes, you say also healing is not only about willingly participating in what's present, but deliberately changing our perspective. Do you think you are alive today at 102 because of that? Oh, absolutely. <clears throat> it, you know, you go through hard times, you work through, and you actually live through them you understand what that hard time was a a message for you it's a it's a teacher it's something the whole process of going through that whether it's physical mental or spiritual pain and and suffering that we humans you know actually work through i don't think we just get over them you tell you know people are told oh just get over something you don't get over it you have to live through it. Once mm -hmm. you understand that it's part of 
life, you know, and life is moving and life moves through good times and bad times, through dark times and, and sunny times and the moon shines and the stars shine, but the is the, the darkness is there for us from for us to learn from and become more in tune with what our purpose was when we came to earth. Hmm. It makes me think about this idea that I think I don't know where it got started that we often hear in the new age space, I guess, which is that life is about happiness. Life is about joy. And yes, that is one aspect, but life isn't all about happiness. Life too is about suffering because suffering can serve as a brilliant training ground to refine and heal our soul. Yes, uh, uh, totally, because it's one of our teachers. Right. You don't really pay much attention to your toes until you stub your toe and boy then you have to right. you know, it's it's a, a aspects of our body that are the, our messengers from within and without it's it's a, a a triune being it's why i rode my tricycle into my birthday party this last time because I, tr the tricycle for me, has become um, a beautiful symbol of what healing can be. You have the the tricycle is a well. When let me take go back a bit. When we started the American Holistic Medical Association, the thing that a group of us realized was that there was something basically missing. In what we were taught, we were taught, well, I was during the war, uh, World War II, about fighting disease and fighting pain. <clears throat> and our job was to kill both, yeah. get rid of disease and get rid of pain. And that that just didn't suit right didn't didn't sit right with us as we were looking at what we were working with and how we were working with the patients and so on and we realized that there was the whole aspect of our spiritual nature that was totally uh dismissed i mean the things the names that we were <laughs> called was not just woo-woo. I mean, I'm not going to repeat what we were called because it it was we were completely wackadoodle people for the for uh, the medical community, and so the tri what the tricycle says when you ride a tricycle is you first you have the two back wheels, and that they're wonderful. They're strong and they work well. They're, they're complete circles, which are attached to an amazing frame. So the infrastructure of the whole process is strong and can be, you know, worked with and used, but it can't do anything until it has the third wheel. Mm. And that third wheel is our spiritual nature. When you put that third wheel on, it can take the direction. It can go where it needs to go. It can stop and go and all of that. But 
Even that can't really do it until we as human beings climb on the tricycle, take hold of the, the uh, steering wheels, whatever. I, don't, I guess that's what they're called. And, and go where we decide we need to go. The whole structure of the whole system is ready to go, but it takes that spark of life to come alive. Um, I have, through the years, I've come up with, with what I call five L's. The first L is life. Life by itself can't do anything. It's like um, <clears throat> a seed in the pyramids <clears throat> that's been there for 5,000 years and it hasn't done anything until love activates it by having some water come to it or sunlight, you know, some attention come to it. And then the, the shell that it's in cracks and life emerges and life and love become one unit. Just like when a sperm and ovum connect, when those two connect, life and love become one unit. So life and unit, one, life and love are together. One can't work with, well, one works, they work together. You have to have the, the two sides. The third L is laughter. Laughter without love is cruel. It's mean. But with love, it's happiness and joy. The fourth one is labor. Labor without love is drudgery. Oh, I got to go to work. There are too many diapers. You know, that all of this heavy thing that call, come, comes to us as we're working through life. But drudgery with, I mean, uh, yeah, with love is bliss. It's why you do why you do what you're doing. It's why a singer sings. It's why a painter paints. It's that inner aspect of our true humanity that is connected and says, yes, this is what I'm here for. And the fifth one is listening. Mm -hmm. Listening without love is a claggy gong. It's an empty sound. But listening with love is bliss. No, wait, I've got my the the the, the um, drudgery is bliss. The listening with sound is understanding. <laughs> yeah, I got love, love, laughter, labor, listening. But it all comes down to the foundation of loving. Well, yeah. absolutely, love is the great healer. It's the it's the most important aspect of of the whole process of healing. How do you define soul health? I think it's very difficult to define because it's individual. And we each individual um, need to find that. Uh, when we find it, we know it. 
when when we are working within our own being, when we when we respond to that inner physician within us, then we know what we're doing. Uh, and we it's also, you know, there's certain things, it's the whole concept of, of understanding is understanding that, yeah, this is right. There are times when you, you get it right, you know, you know, you, something happens and you think, yeah, that's it. But it's that inner coordination of all aspects of our total being that allows us to settle in and say, yes, well, okay, I got that lesson. Now I could go on with others. Mm -hmm. You talk a lot about in your book, the juice for one's life. How is the pursuit of what we want more important than the achievements that we accumulate in life? Well, it, I guess it depends on what you want. <laughs> you know, if you want, um, it, well, I, I, I still have a 10-year plan. I want to be able to work with the, the community that I'll be working with to create a village for living medicine, which would be a place where human beings, we we people who uh, are part of what E.T. was talking about, home. Yes. <laughs> it's that, that inner, inner knowing what is right and for us and how, you know, when, when you're listening to some, some music, sometimes there's, there's a vibration that just, you get it. You, you understand it. Your body responds to it. Sometimes you're listening to a story and you get it. Or sometimes somebody just says a word and, and, and you get it. You know, there are times when we totally tune in with the, our true nature and we understand it. But if you've never felt that, well, let no, me no, no, back. If you if you've never looked for that, so you've ne never understood that that's there, you don't see it. Mm -hmm. If you're not looking for it, you're not going to see it. So the the key is to start looking for what it is, not just what what you'd like to see. It'd be nice and good. You know, that, that's all nice. But what it is that makes you really want to sing? What is it, what is it that, that, that keys you uh, up and says, that's it, yes. And then you know you've tried, gotten on your tricycle and you're all ready to go. But it's, it's that, that thing that no one else can tell you. They can show you they can work with you they can as uh, give you aspects of their own loving being and and persona and all of that but if you've never felt love how do you explain it i spent 
uh, when we were working on, when I was working on this book, one day I spent the almost the whole day trying to um, explain love, yeah. and and be tried. We said, well, you know, it's the music of love. It's it's the and on and on and, and then we tried different way in different ways. And then, and finally, we realized that if a person has not never experienced love, they don't know what it is. It's yeah. like trying to tell a a person who was born blind what the color green is. Yeah. You know, there's certain things that unless you, as a human being, have not experienced it, it's it's very hard for you to understand. You can understand all kinds of dimensions of it, but this whole, whole process of life itself and, and the uh, aspect of that process with love is the thing that really, really, I think Jesus was coming to earth to tell us. Mm -hmm. and and actually brought yeah i love that um so much you know it just makes me think about when we talk about or i talk about spiritual experiences and i share some of my experiences from time to time on this show and with friends and with clients and and sometimes i'll get the response that they'll feel bad that they haven't had that sort of spiritual connection. And I would say sometimes to them when appropriate that I just pray, my prayer for them is that they have an encounter and so that they know that they're not alone, that they know that there's something greater than them guiding the ship of their life. And it makes me think about that when you're sharing this idea of love and not having the experience of that, that the prayer is that they have an encounter with right. love. Right. And, and you know, if, you, if you're not looking for the light, you don't see it. Right. And yeah. I, I like uh, sort of think about this, too. If I have a flashlight and I'm walking my path and I'm going along, I can just take one step at a time as as far as that flashlight will let me go. Mm -hmm. And that's fine, and I'm just going along. But as I'm going along that path, sometimes there are little glimpses of, of a glimmer of light over at the side or along the path. And if I add my light from my flashlight to that flashlight, it increases the light of that person of that person's flashlight and they begin to see something but if they're not on uh but as they are on the path of looking for the light and love and hope and and the whole process of of, of an encounter they'll find it because there's will always be somebody who's walking the path and sharing it with others. I mean, you know, that's the way we're put together. We yeah. are units of living 
uh, divine humanity, which understands that we are community. You have difficulties, you have pain, you have all things, but that's not wrong. It's what it's a lesson. It's something that's saying to me, "All right, now here's something. <laughs> How am I going to really work with this?" So that I learn the lesson that this this part of my journey is teaching me. Yeah, I'm also hearing as you're speaking that we're made up of units of light. We are light, so yeah. the solution is to always find the source of light, be it from a feeling, a person, something we love to do, a a um, getting moving, anything that can increase or bring us into greater communion or experience with our essence, which is light. So when we separate ourselves from the light, that's moving towards expiration or death. Would you agree? Absolutely. Because life has to move. Yes. If life stops moving, it dies. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we get stuck in a very difficult place and we think that this is, well, you know, yeah, I'm done. But if we start looking for the light, the light shines on it and all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, I mean, and then, whoa, whoa, look at this light that, sh that shone upon this stuff that I was dealing with that was so difficult. Yes. And yeah. And, well, and our dreams are so helpful with this. Mm -hmm. Well, I love the story, uh, just shifting a bit to your book, the story of Anne and how you mentioned that happiness has so much more to do with how we feel than anything else. She was doing two jobs and at night she was teaching yoga, which she loved, but she was teaching so many classes that she was essentially burnt out. And so when she came to you exhausted, you said, well, maybe just pull back a bit. And so she did reluctantly. And she said to you in so many words, I feel like I'm going backwards. And you said, no, 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 you're actually living your teachings. And I just, I loved when you wrote that in your book, because I can really relate to that. Um, right. Yeah. And I'm sure many yeah. people can. <laughs> yeah. And, and and the thing is, too, that uh, when we as physicians or caregivers or tell somebody that they really need to rest, mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that they need to give up and because, you know, they have no more juice. To, to be able to rest is to be able to do something. And that something is resting. It's part of the whole continuum of life's movement. So if we are saying to somebody, well, right now you have whatever, this or that or the other thing. And Anne was coming to the point where she needed to rest. And resting was not to give up everything, was to just go down and let yourself rest. Mm -hmm. As a doctor, 
for so many decades and seeing thousands and thousands of patients and recognizing, by the way, that everybody has different curriculums and traumas and belief systems and habits and, and backgrounds. But what do you, is there, is there a commonality that you find with people that are perpetually sick? Is it the absence of self-love? Is it self-punishment? Is it, is it um, non-rest? Is it, is there one thing that you saw as a theme in your patients? I don't think there's any one thing, but it's the one thing that that person is uh, working with. Mm -hmm. And it may be that they've, at, at some time in their life, they've been so traumatized and there's been so much pain and so little light and life has been so hard that they really feel that there that it isn't there and so that's the point at which i think having those people around who are looking with their flashlight to help somebody else who's really struggling is really important because we're all in this world together Mm-hmm. And um, I have the idea, I don't say this is a doctrine or anything, but I think have the idea that when we were created, when, when the Lord created us and he gave us dominion over the earth, that he said, you, you people, you know, you have choice, but others, the other creatures and so on really don't have the choice and the ability to do the things that you're. So here you are, you have dominion over the earth. And we, in our pride, said, oh, yeah, okay. And we thought it was dominance. And it's not dominance. We don't dominate the earth. We don't dominate. We can. We can try to. We can try to dominate other people. We can try to dominate, the, you know. But dominance and dominion are completely different. Dominion says you take care of. So the earth was given to us to take care of, and we just kind of got somehow sidetracked and and stuck and thought that we have to, you know, do what we've done. Yes. You're a woman of faith and love in action. And um, I don't quite know how I want to ask this question, but I'll just ask it anyway. Have you felt an encounter? Have you seen Christ? Have you seen angels? Oh, I'm sure yeah. you felt the presence. In the book, I talk about finding my voice when I was 93. The reason I say that, the reason I've written that story is because when I was uh, a small child and we with my parents in the jungles of India, I thought life was bliss. I mean, I really, this was it. But then I started school and I couldn't, I couldn't read. I, the, uh, the letters were all over the page. They kept moving. And so for two years, I was the class dummy. I was the one who would just 
couldn't write, couldn't read, and so on. And my teacher treated me like that. She, she, you know, ridiculed me and, and well, I won't even go into it, but it was a deep soul trauma that I was subjected to. Fortunately, I had a home that I could go to, and um, my Aya was the she was waiting there for me, and she'd pull me in under her shawl, and I'd get sort of get the world would come back, and I could go on with it. But I was so traumatized by that that until I was ninety three, I really didn't trust my voice. I would. I had written books. I had talked, done lectures. I'd worked with patients. I'd understand a, a, a lot of things and so on. But I would always be looking for someone to validate it. You know, uh, I would say to my husband, "Would you check this?" And 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 or I'd have say, you know. Anyway, I was. I would um, say something that would allow me to uh, kind of back off because I didn't trust my voice. And then one night, I I had a dream. Actually, it was a Sabbath, a Sunday morning, and I woke up laughing and singing. And, and I woke up and I thought, whoa, and I knew it was a Sunday morning. But the dream was that I was watching myself as a 93-year-old Gladys, watching a nine-year-old Gladys in the jungles of North India, peeking out of the tent and looking around to make sure that my little brother didn't see me because in our family on Sunday mornings, we weren't allowed to sing anything but hymns and pudgeons. And in my nine-year-old wisdom, I thought that was stupid. So I was going to do something that I knew would require punishment if I uh, did it. But I was, you know, I was going to do it anyway. So he wasn't there. None of the little Indian kids were there. And so I ran as fast as I could. And I climbed the mango tree clear up to the top. And I was sitting there and I was singing. I was singing the caterpillar song or the whatever song I wanted to sing. <clears throat> and all of a sudden, I would look over my left, my right shoulder, and Jesus was up in the tree with me. And I looked at him, and he's laughing. He's just really laughing. And uh, I said, Jesus loves the little children, right? And he laughs, and he says, yes. So then I go back to my singing, and I'm singing it again, and I'm singing it again. But then I get to thinking, yeah, are you sure? <laughs> you know? So I look back on my shoulder, and he's still up there, and he's still uh, laughing. And I said, uh, I'm still a little children, right? And he said, yes. And I went back to the singing, and I woke up with the singing and laughter. So I, I really had brought that message from Jesus to my soul, which said, for pity's sakes, pay attention to your own voice. Mm -hmm. You know, you have a voice, you have something, a message that you have to give. The world needs it. And 
you know, there are some rules that are uh, are there and and maybe you should trust, pay attention to them or not. But right now, you have a message to give and trust it and sing. And, you know, I mean, so from that point on, I trusted what it was that was was being given to me as a message from the divine that I could share with other people because if I if I didn't claim it as my voice, I was denying it. Mm-hmm. And so in, in in essence, a part of my I, my message was I was denying what I was actually saying, which I knew I need, you know, it was that sort of a whole learning experience. Mm, so powerful. <clears throat> that makes me think about your experience uh, with healing and going through your, uh, the time, I think you were in your 60s, if I recall correctly from your book, when you had that thyroid tumor. I, was it cancer that you had? Yes. Okay. And you talk about how you went into prayer and meditation and you used herbs and you healed it naturally and how you used essentially self-love to heal your thyroid. And it also makes me, of course, think about how that could be as a consideration, part of the perhaps curriculum of you inhibiting your voice, be it on the throat, the thyroid. The Absolutely. Absolutely. Could you share how you came into that as a directive, an inner directive to heal your thyroid, listening within and and applying self-love? Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, I went on a 30-day fast, Mm. water with just some grape juice, and uh, lost a lot of weight and all, but... uh, but the, the but the tumor disappeared. So um, it was something that that we at that time in our in my life with with my husband, we were really uh, heading up the American Holistic Medical Association, and so for me to have the opportunity to do something that could actually uh, show myself particularly, but then show other people too, that it could be done this other way, that there was another way. Uh, I felt that that was important for us to, to manifest. And so that's, that's why I did it that way. But then uh, when I had it, when I was, um 86 the thought i had thyroid but it was breast this time i i had the i had the lump removed and i had radiation and i did the uh, the conventional uh things because they were not as invasive or and uh, as the ones that were at the time when i had did it before and also I was not in a position to, um, I I was doing things that were so important for me to be doing that I couldn't take the month off and do the thing I was able to do. In other words, 
we have to look at where we are in life and how what it is that we are working with fits into what we can do at that time. And, and you know, uh, so how could I ever say to uh, any other person, you should do this, you know, mm-hmm. you should take a month off. And I would never say that to, another, to a patient or a friend or anything. All I can say is I did it at that time because it was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. You fasted for a month with grape juice. Why a little bit of grape juice? Just curious. I needed a little bit of sustenance. I needed a little bit. And, 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 you know, grape juice is a good sustaining process. But I needed a little bit of something. I wasn't. Uh, and my I'd had a dream about it anyway. So. <laughs> uh, okay. Your dream told you to do it that way. Yeah. So um, well, that's awesome. <laughs> Just leave it at that. Um, well, what do you say to someone who you feel has no faith? Uh, well, all I can say to someone who has no faith is that I don't believe it. (laughs) They do have faith, you know, someplace along the line, they have, they believe in something and maybe, maybe it's just a little thing. Maybe they have a, a, a plant that is in their uh, window and that little plant is going to grow, but they have to take care of it. You know, a lot of elderly folks uh, are suffering from this kind of thing, you know, they, they're in nursing homes and, and uh, are, the, we've forgotten that they are still people. Mm-hmm. And they don't even know that they're still people. They're medicated and and uh, confused and all of that. But if they have a uh, have a plant in their windowsill, and they can see what's that that plant, they can take care of that. That's letting their life force connect with some other life force that is vital to them. At that time, I do not wish <laughs> to tell another person that what they believe is wrong. I mean, I may think that that is the wrong thing to believe and all that because it would be for me. But for them, there are lessons that they need to learn. There are things that they need to, uh, or they wouldn't be experiencing it. Yeah. Yeah. What do you feel is the greatest quality other than love as a basis for life? Other than love, what do you feel for you, Gladys, has been the one quality or inner state that has really served your life greatly? It's the connection with other people. Mm. My, My children when I was a, the only physician in, in this small town, 
9,000 people and Bill was in the service and all of that. But I had four children, uh, four children under the age of four, which I really, they gave me my juice. Mm -hmm. I would come home at in the night uh, or in the evening, and my son Bob would, was 18 months old. He'd be sitting on the porch steps waiting for me. And I'd pick him up, and we'd go in and sit in the rocking chair, and he'd, I'd rock him while he patted my shoulder. Mm. And my, my world would come back into uh, focus, and I could continue to go. It was um, a f reality that uh, there had to be some connection to the inner aspect of my whole being, which is my children. Yes. I had to be able to uh, refocus for that time so that I could go out and then do the work that I was doing with other people. But it, it, the reality of a community within myself and my own process was essential to my ability to work with other people. So I think that it's so, that the understanding that we're not in this world by ourselves is really important. And the only, if we're feeling that way, if we're feeling that uh, I, there's no, you know, nobody cares for me, nobody loves me, you know, the whole thing. Look around and find the pe another person that feels that way so that you can love them or find a plant that you can love or get a puppy dog, you know, that you can love. It's the, the ability to reach past your own pain to help some other person so that the life energy, the juice within you can continue to flow. Mm. I have a theory, too, that the terrible things that are going on in our country where young men are shooting other young people may be because they have never experienced love and death. If they uh, had, you know, they watch TV or their games and uh, they have a hero and the hero dies and then the next day they come back and he's alive and the hero dies and you know it, so there's there's no reality to death and if they're in a condition where love is uh, at a minimum for them I, maybe not withheld completely but if if they don't really experience love and death how would they know that if they go into a classroom and shoot up, uh, that this is terrible, you know, how would they know that? Now, if, however, they had a dog that had died and they understood what it feels like for a something that was a living creature that you loved died, I don't think they would do it. So I'm suggesting that instead of putting 
guns in teachers' hands, we put guardian dogs in the classroom. Mm. I think that a guardian dog, you know, I I understood this, but I had a friend who told me that she, well, I knew that she was a, a, a retired school teacher. And she said that what, the best year she ever had was a year when she had a dog in her classroom. And she said that dog knew if there was a child that was hurting, that was so, and it would go and sit by that child. But if there was a child that was afraid of dogs, it wouldn't come anywhere near until that child reached out to them. And she said she had no discipline problems that year. It was the most wonderful year. That dog took the uh, loving aspect of a classroom and personified it. Mm -hmm. and so a guardian dog, now it would start a whole new profession. You have to have a dog that's hypoallergenic. You have dog that you have to uh, have traders for the dog. You have to be, you know, taken care of properly. You have to have the parents under uh, trained to, to understand about the teachers and so on. So it would start a whole new profession, and I think that uh, it would be very hard for one of these young people to come in to a classroom and shoot up the people. Yeah, you know, I, I, I my, my farthest imagination, I can't think that a, a person who had really experienced the love of a dog who had died or something like that, or the experience of dealing with that, that they would do such a thing. Mm -hmm. I think that's brilliant. And I think we need to write that up and get that to our litigators, or at least the conscious litigators that can move that I, along. That's brilliant. I, I agree. I think that, I, you know, it's a, it's a way of reaching past uh, the darkness and into the light. Yes. There's a reason why dog is God spelled backwards. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and also, you know, repetition is the mother of all learning. So to your point, if a kid is on Fortnite 24-7 or even just a few hours a day and they're just shooting people up and, you know, day yeah. after day and then they start again, it's just that. That repetition is telling them, to be desensitized to death. Yeah. 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 So not to reiterate your age, Gladys, but <laughs> to reiterate your, reiterate your age in service to this question, being 102, a lot of people may say they feel that they've run out of time, that they don't have enough time, that they're too old. <laughs> that it's too late, that they've missed the boat. What do you say to someone who feels like time is not on their side? They're wrong. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> time definitely is on their side. I, I really had to learn 
about my voice when I was 93. I mean, come on. How old do you have to get to understand <laughs> that you've got something here that is important to say? I mean, I uh, there's always something there that, that you can learn and work towards. You know, the the whole idea of the plant, I had a friend and patient who... Uh, a gentleman who um, was in the nursing home. And uh, so we gave him a plant. And when I went to see him, um, when the plant was growing, he was taking care of it and so on. He said, you know, this plant has been, he, he loved that plant. But he said, there's another thing that's really interesting. In this room that I'm in, he says, see this magic box? And he pointed to the air conditioner. We're in Scottsdale, okay? And he says, here's a button. If I push this button when it's too hot, it cools off. If I push this button when it's too, you know, he's, I, can, I can control the temperature in my room. And... And the and the plant likes the temperature to be controlled. So he was connecting his life with the <laughs> air conditioner and that plant in a way that he had something to live for. Mm. I was in so awe of his magic box. He said, "Now look, this is a magic box. Look at this." <laughs> mm. That's. Fantastic. Well, what do you feel? And I know this is a bit of a blanket question, but, and I know your life has been filled so richly with so many lessons and opportunities to grow. But is there one lesson that has really stuck out in your life that's been this sort of big kahuna? Yeah, the one lesson, you're not alone. You're just absolutely not alone. There's always something that's, and some person. And and the interesting thing is, too, that it took me a long time to learn this one, too. There's some people who are, um, and I think we all experience this periodically, are difficult to get along with for whatever reason. They're difficult to get along with, and um, and for you can you, you can hang on to that difficulty for, for them as long as you want to, and uh, and that's sort of uh, I've learned <laughs> of waste of energy, waste of juice, because that person is going to be that person and they'll change when they need to. But my change for them, how I would like to see them change may not be um, the time when they could. I mean, maybe they need to be 93 before they could really understand it. In other words, uh, I there are issues that come along. And I the, the thing that I learned from my mother 
was the Kuchpurwane. It just doesn't matter. You you can let it go. You can take that issue, and it can be a real sore spot, and hold it in your hand, and just put it up and open your fingers, and let the whole issue drop, like petals on a uh, in a, rose petals. It just is not important. That person is going to do it their own way, their own time. Learn the lessons that they need to learn and all of that. But I don't need to focus on what it is that irks me about that person or that hurts me. Either, you know, it may be something that has really hurt me. And, 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 you know, families break up for, from some of these things when, when you have a, issue that you you just can't deal with if you can't deal with it just let it go Mm -hmm. you talked about your plan of building this community of living medicine which i'd love for you to talk a little bit more about as a perhaps a model for other communities to um learn from and something that we could potentially establish even more of on planet earth well yeah i'd like to see it any place it, it can be any place it's not we're going to start it someplace so that it, um, it becomes flesh and dwells among us you know the whole idea but yeah. uh, it's it's the idea that we need to have places on this earth that are sacred places and they have to be places where people could live where, where you have a, 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 a you know a, a shoemaker that is living there and a pharmacist that is living there and somebody else but the the structure of it has to start with in my mind my, my with the birthing center, we lean. I'm passionate about reclaiming, reclaiming the process of birth for women, because what we have done uh, since I was in medical school in World War II, um, we and my first two children were born this way. We had what we called twilight sleep in which the woman was totally anesthetized, didn't know from nothing. I mean, she was gone. And so there was no way that she could push that baby out. So we were trained to remove the baby with forceps. And Mm -hmm. I was really good at that. I could could take care of a a breech baby and get the head delivered. You know, these were things that we learned. Yeah, And in the process of doing that, what we have done has totally, totally taken away the power that we women have of giving birth. We think that somebody, a doctor or somebody else, delivers a baby. 
I'm trying really hard to not use that word. Yeah. I did not deliver the babies that I delivered. Oh. <laughs> I helped mothers birth their babies. We've taken the power away from women so that they don't know that they have that power within themselves. And and it's it's so in the village for living medicine, we have a we need to have a loving birth center where the very essence of what it is is that the baby will be coming into a environment of love and patience and light and joy and all of that, not the way I birthed my first two sons. I love that so much. And it makes me think of some of the work I do in um, working in the biofield as a biofield healer at the edge of the field, we call it the ionosphere and it's the gestational area. Right. And I can't tell you how many thousands of sessions where I see trauma at birth. And then of course that creates the distortions that they've perpetuated in their life where their mother's curriculum is their own, their mother's fears, their mother's pain. Grandmothers. Got it. Wow. Oh, Gladys, that's really powerful. It also makes me think of my own personal experience giving birth to my son. And uh, I was a yoga teacher for many, many, many years. And I was invited to be on the cover of this very well-known magazine. I won't say what it is. (laughs) And And I was blessed to get the cover of this magazine and have the spread and write about, which is so silly. Even now, as I talk about it, it just makes me laugh. They wanted me to write an article on how I could sort of yogically approach birth and give birth. So, of course, being a virgin to giving birth, (laughs) I talked about, right? I talked about my pranayam. I talked about all these different things that I could do to bring peace to the experience of giving birth. And I have to tell you, and also I talked about, of course, doing it naturally. And when in the time came and I was in active labor, all that went out the window. (laughs) I didn't, first of all, you can't have candles in a hospital. Second of all, um, I was going to a hospital. I wasn't doing it at home. I did have a doula though. And I uh, I didn't want any music. I wanted to scream and grunt. I didn't want to do any deep breathing. <laughs> and I got an epidural at three centimeters. And, and I broke my tailbone in the last 15 minutes of pushing because <laughs> I was delivering on my back. And as you know, the, it's better to be squatting or on yeah. your knees. The tailbone can, uh, you know, have its natural expression. So I think, wow, I really took the power out of me. I mean, I did the best I could. I'm not shaming myself, but it's like, wow, if I had that environment where I could birth in a way that was empowering and I had that environment that was giving me that feedback that, no, just allow your cervix to open and you got this. And I went back to the magazine and I said, 
I don't even know how you allowed me to write an article on how to give birth when I never gave birth before. (laughs) Can I do a rewrite? And they said, no, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's all an illusion. What I was putting out was an illusion. Even my doctor (laughs) at the time said, because this magazine was in her office and she's sitting across from me on her at her desk. And she said, well, holding the magazine issue. (laughs) And she said, I've read your birth plan. (laughs) And she said, I've got news for you. You won't get it. (laughs) Birth is like baseball. And uh, she was right. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Well, you know, um, I had the opportunity to go to Afghanistan when I was 86 to help the Afghani women with the birthing process because my older brother, Carl Taylor, was the head of future generations and he um, knew that the Afghani, well, they they had been working with people around the world uh, and the maternal mortality rate for women in Afghanistan was higher than any place else in the world. And they couldn't find out why. And well, of course, they couldn't really talk to the women because the husbands wouldn't let them talk to the women. So they couldn't find out why this was going on. So Carl, and I was just ready to retire from my practice. And I'd always said, I'm not going to retire to from any, the practice of medicine until I had to retire too. Okay, so he he said, okay, this is an opportunity for you. So we, you know, so I went and I worked with Dr. Shukriya Hassan, an Afghani woman physician who in her family was rejected because she was considered a bad woman because she went to medical school and all this kind of thing. And the first thing we did was to set up um, programs so that we'd have a week to work with 20 women who had given birth and uh, record their birth histories and all of that kind of thing. We talked to the men and asked them, you know, you had to get permission from the men. And they said, no, they were wives who weren't going to do that. And so Shukriya says to them, well, we're really interested in your mother's-in-law. <laughs> Oh, okay, you can have them. <laughs> so they were the women that we wanted. They the ones that given birth, you know. So we uh, we had the we rented a house and had thirty um, women, yeah, and uh, and you know we told them about birth and all this kind of stuff, and and worked with them and and they were so excited about it, and and they you know women. Women, when they learn something, they teach. And when they went home, they taught the people that they were in their villages. And within a year, the birth rate had come, uh, I mean, the death rate had come way down. It was. What was the birth? What was the death rate at the time? Oh, I don't remember now at this point. Okay. Uh, I'd have to look up the statistics. But that's that's great that it was uh, uh, remedial. 
Yeah. yeah. That's wonderful. Well, just shifting gears before we go here, and thank you so much for going over and sharing your amazing stories of fortitude and wisdom. And what a privilege. Oh, what a privilege for me. Are you kidding? Thank you. That just makes me, as you say that, you're you're so alive with gratitude, Gladys. Yeah. What do you say to someone that just says, I don't feel like I have anything to be grateful for? Well, let me tell you a quickie. Yeah. <laughs> My daughter, who was a a physical therapist and I had done a lecture together and um, there was a big audience. And afterwards p- people came up and said, well, what's your secret? And I was trying to come up with, with something that was cuter or something or something. So I'm kind of, uh, and I get the elbow from my daughter and she says, Oh mom, you do understand. You dwell in gratitude. Wow. And I said, yeah, that's it. <laughs> Because, uh, you know, I, my, from my mother and on down into my whole life, gratitude has been a, a essential part of my focus. Because even the horrible things that have happened, I mean, there have been some really hard things that have happened in my life. They have been huge teachers and i've learned lessons from them that i never would have learned if i hadn't gone through the process of looking at what's going on here and what it is that i'm learning and understanding that well to that point what do you think has been your most um greatest teacher or lesson I, I think the, the five L's, yeah. you know, that love is the essence of all of those aspects of life. Mm-hmm. And if, if I could keep the focus on that, then it's transformational because I truly believe that love and life are integral. If, and for my life to continue and be the kind of life that I uh, want to be living or the, that I am living or whatever, it's very essential that life and love are connected and life has to move and so on and so on, you know, and it has to be in community. And so it's, I, I think these are lessons that are part of who I am <clears throat> and um, I learned them all you know day by day minute by minute but by being part of what was happening like just now can I ever imagine at my farthest uh, dreaming that I would be sitting here talking to you at this age. Right. I mean, I, 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 that's beyond my imagination, but here we are. Here we are. You are so full 
of life. You have more life in you than people that I know that are in their 60s and 70s. And with that, you have so much life and you have so much left to do. But if you were to die today, which again is highly unlikely, but uh, as, yeah. a, as a hypothetical, would you feel that your life is complete? If I died today, yes. How would you know that? I'd fall down my steps and I'd die and I'd look and say, well, well, that was, God. you know, <laughs> I'd, it'd be a big whoops. <laughs> you are, know? You, are you afraid of death at all? No, no, no. It, to me, it's like um, die, going to sleep and having a dream. Mm. I, the, I've experienced such a joyful process when my sister died. When my <clears throat> oldest daughter, Analia, died, uh, they, you know, and they're not gone. Right. They're still, and my parents, too. It's, it's, you know, when, when I have a night when I'm not sleeping, I go down what I call memory lane. And memory lane is the amazing experiences that I've had that are still alive within me and because they're alive within me the sisters the whoever is still alive you know that that life process is still uh, something that goes on because I don't want to forget what uh, we did together and the things that we had together and I'm constantly Remembering, in fact, I remembered something today which I had to forget now. <laughs> but it, you know, there was something that happened, and and uh, I said, "Oh yeah, I remember." It's it's that kind of a thing that life is is so awesome when you're looking at it. <laughs> I mean, it's like, whew, yeah. When you do pass on whenever that day or decade yeah, <laughs> in your face yeah. comes, which could be a long time from now. But when that day of transition comes, what do you imagine Jesus will say to you? Come on back in, friend. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I, I like to call it, Jesus, my friend, you know, what a friend we have. He's still, a, you know, he was up in the tree with me. I mean, he, he's a pretty good tree climber. <laughs> and, um, no, I, 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 I expect, uh, and, and, and I think my mother and dad and my sister and other people, uh, it'll be like my mother when, well, when my father died and, and, uh, my mother said, well, now there has to be a glory hallelujah on the other side. You know, it's that kind of a feeling that, okay, you lived your life, you're done, you're finished, but there's a glory hallelujah, you're doing things on the other side. And mm -hmm. I've been in touch with my daughter and my uh, husband and my parents in dreams and, and so on. So it's been an ongoing process. 
What do they tell you that they're doing? Well, uh, <laughs> my husband, who asked for a divorce and me were divorced for, for all of it. I, uh, he's from the other side. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how he uh, this happened. I have his navy jacket that was sent to me by somebody who found this in the in the uh, auditorium uh, of where he graduated from medical school, and she did she and a voice said to her, "You have to get in touch with this family," and she got in touch. At just an hour after I had been talking to him through a psychic who oh, had contacted him. I mean, this is there's a whole story here. It's an amazing story, but it's in my closet. Wow. And so the jacket, so the psychic said to this said to, made you aware of this this uh you had a session with a psychic and then an hour after this this person found yeah. this jacket and got in touch with you well yeah uh, i i was given this birthday present from a friend to, to get in touch with this psychic so i talked to Lee and my daughter and she said oh mom i'm just so busy here i've just you know she was telling me this stuff and then I said I wanted to talk to Bill. And the first thing he said to me was, I need to tell you that, uh, first of all, I never stopped loving you. Secondly, I got all tangled up at my, with my old karmic patterns and stuff, and I and couldn't get untangled. Mm. And then after we'd had that conversation, an hour later, my son Bob called me and said, there's a woman he, that has called me. I don't know who she is, but she says she has dad's Navy jacket. Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, how, how that happened? I mean, it, it actually materialized this. She sent it to me. And the jacket, uh, my wedding picture, he was wearing this because he went through the V-12 program during the war. His, he has no stripes on the sleeve, but the jacket has four stripes on the sleeve because he was, you know, he, he wasn't anything as he started. His, he was in the V-12 program, but he, when he ended four years of training, he was a captain. So he had four stripes on his, I mean, I, I don't know how, how it happened, but it's there. I can spirit. Wow. It's that it's that amazing dispensation of spirit materializing yeah. itself and physical. It's all one, you know. It is. It really things is. can happen. Well, Gladys, Dr. McCrary, I'm so honored to have you. I'm so honored to have done this with you and this is this is something I will always treasure. So I'm Thank just so you. grateful to you and your time and your energy and your beloved heart. Um, this has been so refreshing and 
healing for me. And I hope it is for everyone that listens to this episode. But you know, all that I've done wouldn't amount to a hill of beans if you didn't pick it up and run with it. Oh, well, <laughs> I'm going to run with it. So. <laughs> I always say at the beginning of every episode, take what you need, throw the rest away or pass it on to somebody else who could use it because inevitably there's got to be at least one person who will find something in a talk that will serve them well. Thank you for doing this. Thank you and God bless you. Thank you. Hey guys, thanks for checking out the Spiritual Geek Out podcast. If you like what you're hearing here, check out more by subscribing on your favorite platform or go to spiritualgeekout.com.